Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. Austin is adapting to and building the future in real time. I'm Michael Scharf. We are exploring and driving our transformation into the next innovation powerhouse. I'm Jason Scharf. I'm a bio-researcher at UT to the assembly line worker at Tesla, from the musician on 6th Street to the coder at Dell. And with the founders, funders, and early employees of the next great startup, we are all Austin Next. Here's how the group Texas 2036 introduces themselves. In 2036, Texas turns 200. By then, 10 million more Texans will call our state home. Growth has been a part of Texas' past, present, and future. But this growth will bring new challenges as we try to preserve the best parts of Texas and expand opportunity for all Texans. And that's where this organization comes in. They're working to engage Texans in an honest conversation about these big challenges. Together, they try to offer nonpartisan ideas and modern solutions that are grounded in research and data to break through the gridlock on issues that matter most to all Texans. Big challenges, data-driven, nonpartisan, accountability-focused. That's my kind of organization. We are joined today by A.J. Rodriguez, Executive Vice President. Rodriguez joined Texas 2036 in September of 2020 after working as the Vice President of External Affairs at the Zachary Group, where he began in 2011 and oversaw the organization's community investment, philanthropic efforts, media relations, and government affairs. In 2018, AJ was appointed to serve as the Chairman of the Board of Directors of the Texas Association of Business. In 2021, AJ agreed to serve as chairman of the board of the San Antonio Report, a nonprofit, nonpartisan digital news organization. AJ has also served in leadership roles at the City of San Antonio, the San Antonio Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, and the Greater San Antonio Chamber of Commerce. Also, John Harchuk, SVP of Policy and Advocacy. He joined Texas 2036 in 2020, and he's Austin based. John leads the Texas 2036 policy team with a focus on ensuring state leaders have pragmatic and sustainable solutions for the challenges facing our state. In 2021, the Texas 2036 policy team played an important role supporting 45 bills that became law in the areas including workforce, health insurance, broadband, pensions, and K-12 education. John was previously the Deputy Director of Budget and Policy for Governor Greg Abbott, focusing on school finance, property taxes, and other state fiscal and budgetary matters. His work culminated in the passage of House Bill 3, which overhauled the tax and education funding systems in Texas. He worked in budgets and policy roles for former Lieutenant Governor David Dewhurst. In these roles, he led and became an expert in a variety of energy, insurance, health care, pensions, water, and workforce issues. A lot of those things we'll discuss in our conversation. AJ, John, welcome to the Austin Next Podcast. Thanks so much. Very much appreciate the invitation. Great. Let's start with the organization itself. I mean, AJ, you're based in San Antonio. That's where you live. That's right. John, you live here. 
when I looked at the, at the homepage for Texas 2036, Dallas, Texas was the address. That's right. We're, we're pretty multi-city, yeah. multi-dimensional. And it doesn't appear that this was something that just happened because of the pandemic and people working from home. This was intentional. You guys have adopted the Texas Triangle, and that's great. Can you describe your organization and how your team works together, given that you might be all over the place? Absolutely. No, it's, it's pretty purposeful, as you mentioned, Mike. And it started really with Tom Luce's vision, our founder uh, and chairman emeritus, that went around the state and said, is there a need for an interest in a data-driven policy organization? And uh, he got a resounding yes from across the state. And as, as a result of that, uh, started a board of directors that it's incredibly diverse from a geographic standpoint. So we have folks all the way from El Paso to Amarillo to the Rio Grande Valley, uh, all the way to East Texas as well. And uh, also very diverse in regard to their political backgrounds. Uh, so you have folks on both sides of the aisle. Uh, you also have um, individuals from a diverse standpoint in gender and race and ethnicity. And we really are trying to mirror what the state looks like and reflect what the state looks like. Uh, and we believe that that representation can help us make better decisions when it comes to policy development and solutions. Uh, but where it starts for us and where it ends with us is the data. And that's really been our greatest differentiator as an organization. You've warmed my heart already. I mean, data-driven and accountability-focused, I'm like, yes, please, more, you know? Okay, we're here, we're talking about this in mid-January. The legislative session has just started. John, you were telling me the budget's just been filed. Great. The budget's the priority of the legislative session. How is this one gonna be different? Um, I think right now, uh, the biggest story in Texas politics is just, frankly, how much money we have. The size of the surplus relative to previous budgets is just massive. You know, we're, we're sitting on 30 plus billion dollars um, in uh, just in terms of the surplus, not even looking at our future projected revenue growths over past appropriations. That is so much money when you think about the enterprise of Texas. For context, typically the state of Texas spends about $250 billion every two years. And of that, that's inclusive of federal funds that come in. So when we're talking about like state tax revenues, what's generated from your sales tax and oil and gas taxes and all that, you know, that's in the low hundreds. So this is truly a massive amount of money. And with that comes the opportunity to make generationally impactful investments. Now, a couple of things. One, I want to go into the budget just a little bit more because Texas doesn't have a state income tax. Yes. <laughs> One of the reasons why a lot of us are moving here. The other issue is, of course, that states that depend upon state income tax see a lot of variation because of the rise and the fall, the ebb and the flows of the economic, you know, nationally, especially when you talk about a state the size of Texas. Our budget is much more stable from what I can understand because it's based upon sales tax, property taxes. That's a fairly stable amount. And then you've got our oil and gas separation taxes, for lack of a better word. How stable is that? And what's the looking forward for that kind of uh, budget number? So the, the state budget, to the extent it, it appears stable, is because of conscious decisions that were made decades ago. Historically, Texas has experienced wild revenue volatility. 
sales tax, oil and gas taxes, those things can go spiking up and down given the economic cycles, especially with the oil and gas. And the state has no state property tax. That mainly supports schools and local governments. But conscious decisions were made by legislators in the 1980s to set up what we call the Economic Stabilization Fund or the Rainy Day Fund. So on top of the historic surplus right now, we also have this massive savings account that is so full it's looking at overflowing this session, absent appropriations, where we basically say, hey, we got this pot of money here. In the event that there's a decline in revenue, we're ready. And that's wonderful, a great position to be in, especially when we see situations like what are happening in California right now where they're um, facing a significant budget deficit. At the same time, we're having conversations about how can we best invest our massive surplus. It's one of those things that we like to talk to legislators about. You might not know the seed that you're planting today, how it will sprout one day in the future, but it's important to have that forward-thinking vision. And we are in a blessed position today because of lots of decisions that were made decades ago. So the Economic Stabilization Fund from the 80s, the permanent school fund, the permanent university fund, these things that were designed about, you know, how we're going to allocate the lands of West Texas 100 plus years ago that are now these 40, 50 billion dollar investment funds that are yielding dividends to fund our universities and our schools. These things, we don't know what the next one will be. The, the state budget looks like they're going to be creating some more of these endowments. That's amazing. But there are so many other things that the state can be doing and should be doing to think, like long-term, what are our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids, what are the dividends they can yield by the investments from today? And I would say that it's uh, also fortuitous because we're preparing for all those Californians that are moving to Texas <laughs> and not bringing water or energy or broadband or roads with them. And so this is, a, a, as John mentioned, just an incredible opportunity to invest in the future of our state, for invest and prepare for this incredible surge in population that we're ex experiencing 10 million more people by our bicentennial in 2036. And I neglected to mention our organization was founded uh, to essentially prepare for our state's bicentennial in 2036, hence Texas 2036. I think a couple of those Californians are okay. Just <laughs> That's right. I, I, I'll vouch for two. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. You mentioned our kids and our grandkids. We interviewed Roy Spence a couple of weeks ago, and he said one of the things that he is sure of is that every parent wants to, the best for their kids. We have an opportunity, as you mentioned, to make some big investments and some big changes in schools. So I know that's a focus for you guys this legislative session. Let's talk about how 20, the, the Texas 2036 organization and the people are talking to legislators about schools, K through 12 or, or uh, the university system. You know, um, one of the things that's uh, amazing about Texas and the recent trends in Texas education is just four years ago, the legislature came together, bipartisan, uh, unanimous vote to pass what we call House Bill 3. It was a comprehensive school finance overhaul that followed a year-long commission where legislators got together and they looked at the data and the trends and really looked deep into what was happening in our public school system and saw that if we continued on the path we were on in 2019, we were in trouble over the long term. There's this um, goal that the state has had, um, colloquially called 60 by 30. It's 60% uh, of the population having a um, postgraduate uh, degree or credential by 2030. And we were looking at these trend lines, 
And there was no way we were going to get there under the old strategies that were in place. And data cut through all the partisanship, all the talking points, all the vested interests, and we were able to see together what needed to happen. What were the things that were working in some of our communities that could really reroute uh, the conversation? And then with that, there was the bipartisan will to make major investments in strategies that data showed worked. And so there was a massive investment in terms of college and career and military readiness, early education, focusing primarily on early reading, um, making sure that the best teachers um, are paid enough that they can stay in the classroom and support their families instead of having to go to administration um, to get the, the six-figure paychecks. All of those things that happened in 2019 have set up a really important conversation for our state because we have another House Bill 3 moment that's facing us in 2023, and that's with our community college system. Our community college system has a chance to have a complete fundamental rethinking of the role it can do in, in terms of shaping our workforce, aligning the incentives throughout the system, making sure that you know it's not just the Texas Triangle that's growing, but the entirety of the massive square footage of our great state. And so, um, you know, from an organizational standpoint, we embrace when data can cut through partisanship and ideology uh, because we believe that it's helpful in making sure people understand what is worth solving for and where should we put our treasure, our tax dollars, and make sure that when we go or when the legislatures go back to their, their, their districts, they can say, I spent your money wisely and here's the proof. And then years later, you want to be able to show those results. It's why assessment, accountability, all these things are so essential uh, to building public confidence in you know, these big investments. So how do we know that we're aiming at the right target in this case? You said about 60% uh, was our target for you know, uh, college degrees. But then you know, it was just like this, this past week, I saw a number of other states. I, can't, I know Maryland was one of the first, but are no longer requiring you know, college degrees for state government. You see a lot of this case, especially when you have, you know, a lot of these, what was like the Tesla factory, they're like, hey, high school level education, getting 60,000, you know, right out. Are we asking certain levels of certification when they aren't necessary, right? Yeah, I, one of the things that's interesting is um, that, that 60 by 30 plan, that was the former plan. It's actually evolved since that time as leaders have become aware that it's not just a four-year degree. Uh, there are multiple pathways, or there should be multiple pathways to earning family-sustaining wages in the state of Texas. So it can be a credential. It can be getting the right coding certificate. It can be all these different options that exist out there. You know, we need our plumbers and our electricians. Do We need our welders. All this stuff should be counted with the same level of enthusiasm because that's what, how we're going to build a healthy middle class and grow the Texas economy over the long term. You know, in terms of the skills-based hiring that other states are doing, I think Texas could learn from what is happening in those other states and really follow in that. But we also need to work as a state to truly embed into our high school curriculum a lot more career exploration and the opportunity to get a meaningful industry-based credential in high school so that, you know, this is one of those strange uh, statistical things. Um, in 2011, 90% of good-paying jobs in Texas – were held like that's like fifty five thousand, sixty five thousand dollars and above. We're held by people with just high school educations, and by twenty nineteen, that had dropped to eleven percent. That is a generational impact, right? Like a lot of the folks who were making the higher wages left the workforce. You know, can I just real quick and, and kind of just build upon what what John was 
saying and also kind of address your question in a little bit different way. And I think that's where our organization, you know, came in to serve really as a resource for uh, the state legislature in developing our strategic framework. So you mentioned other states. And one of the things that we've done is develop about 170 metrics uh, that we developed through what we call our framework, which is really, in, in my estimation, the only kind of comprehensive long-term plan for the state in terms of aspir 36 aspirational goals that were developed in uh, several different areas, our pillar areas, which are education and healthcare and natural resources and infrastructure, just in safety, government performance. And what we're doing is seeing what those goals and those metrics are and how do we apply those and compare ourselves to, to 11 peer states that we've identified that are somewhat comparable and uh, not necessarily size. California might be one of those that's comparable in size, but uh, in terms of GDP or in terms of economic prowess, et cetera. Well, let me ask you a question. I'm gonna turn away from, from education, get a little more general for a second, AJ. One of the things that I saw when I came to Texas was a huge difference in attitude about a middle class. Texas wants a middle class. I haven't seen that in a lot of other states. I haven't seen the focus. I haven't seen the ability to make that happen like I have yeah. here in Texas. Texas wants everybody to have a self-sustaining wage. I mean, that's the goal is that everybody moves up into a self-sustaining way is able to take care of their families. Okay, and, th and this should not be a surprise. It shouldn't be unique, yet it is fundamentally different from what we see in other states. And I've been trying to figure out what it was because it sounds unlike other places that it was a conscious decision somewhere. I'm trying to find that conscious decision that said that we must have a middle class. I haven't, found, I haven't seen it yet, you know, but obviously it's here. Yeah, there's, there's actually like legislation. It is in the state government code. You can get in there and read that the goal of our education and workforce pipeline, we spend $100 billion per year on K-12, you know, our colleges and universities, our workforce commission job training, all that. The explicit goal of that whole system is to ensure that when students graduate, they're ready for college, a career, or the military, and that the programs, when they finish, whether they go straight into college or into a career, that they are prepared to earn a family-sustaining wage, a self-sufficient wage, whatever term you want to use, basically, take that care you of can yourself. take care of yourself <laughs> without needing government support. That is a conscious choice that you know is embedded throughout state policy. So let me ask you, you guys are going to make some recommendations to the state, I'm sure, with regard to changes in the funding and new funding. One of the things we saw, I had a conversation with some folks from Texas Tech, and their funding is based upon their success is defined by the wage that their students earn when they graduate and get their first job. Again, another unique way of measuring success in terms of education. So what are you guys going to recommend to the state in terms of changing the educational funding and making some progress. That would be great to talk through in, in regard to our community college finance work that we're doing and, and specifically focus on performance-based outcomes that lead to those job placement opportunities and, and eventually we're able to track that over time. So you want them to look like the same system as we have in Texas Tech? Yeah, so the Texas State Technical College is their funding model that has that return value um, calculation directly contributes to how much they pay. 
And what we're looking at in terms of community colleges is going away from a system that basically looks at, you know, um, how many credit hours and more into what is happening to the student. Like, are they completing these key things that we call success in, turning, in terms of earning a credential value? So is this a credential that uh, will help them earn the wages necessary to support their family? And is there market demand for that? and making that a substantial portion of the state funding. Now, will it look exactly like TSTC? We'll see. Um, but it doesn't have to to be a step in the right direction in terms of alignment of incentives across making sure that the schools and the students um, have, like, what is success is the same for each of them. And so, yeah, I think there's going to be a, a lot of great movement in that direction this session. We're thinking a lot about it from, like, a finance and structural perspective, like lining up incentives. How do we, and this may be not a question for the legislature, but at least thinking about it from an educational design question, in that the skills that we need to educate on are changing, and they change rapidly. I mean, look, in the last six months, ChatGPT came out, right? And suddenly the essay and how that changes and how you think about writing changes, right? And, you know, the, you see people banning it in schools and other people going like, I mean, the biggest if, if thing that was the funniest, right, is you had an AI conference banning the use of chat GPT to write papers for it. I'm like, okay, come on, guy. Like, shouldn't you be the embracing? So it's almost back to the, the old adage of like how you learn. Like I have young children and like my, you know, my son is always like, well, can't you Google it? I'm like, no you should learn how to Google the answer to this, right? It's Yes, memorization has certain needs and being able to understand and hold that information in. So yes, we need to fund schools in different ways and thinking about unlining incentives, but how should we be thinking about policy of how do we think about the schools going in and that you need to be able to be swift and rapid in terms of, rapid in terms of technology and the skill sets in the time that somebody starts in kindergarten to the time they graduate 12th grade, the skill sets that you need might have changed. You know, it's, it's a big national conversation that's probably overdue, frankly. When we think about how our schools today are structured, they're built around this assembly line system that's a century plus old that assumes that every five-year-old is the same as every other five-year-old, every six-year-old is the same as every six-year-old, and you move forward from pace to pace uh, based off of your age cohort, not based off your own individual circumstances. And so when we think about the kind of innovation that is like on the cusp of being available, the ability to have more tailored, personalized learning environments that can really channel in on where individual students are and what their needs are and their competencies so everyone can achieve their full potential, that is truly exciting stuff that can revolutionize how public education works in America. We have this problem right now that our system does not work for a large chunk of our kids, right? Like when we look at our reading scores uh, and our math scores, it's, you know, you're lucky if you're getting half of your kids reading at grade level. It's, it's not okay how things are going today. And so there are these trend lines and we work really hard to improve the trend lines. We're trying to get to these, these uh, currently what we believe to be attainable goals, but like the revolution that you're talking about, like that's coming and we need to be prepared from that from a policy perspective. And when it is helpful and it can help us get not 
50, 60, 70%, but you know, 80, 90, 100% kids where they need to be to succeed, that is going to completely radicalize and make everything so much better in our country. And the training of teachers has to be different and adaptive and being able to be like, you can do things a little bit different. You can be on Zoom sometimes, not on others. It's appropriate here, you know, whatever. We are moving into some areas of innovation in regard to curriculum and virtual learning as well. Uh, one of the things that uh, you were talking about, John, that reminded me of our accessibility too. So there's kids that, you know, 70% of third graders can't read at grade level, 40% can't do math at grade level, which is just astounding. But there's also those kids that are far advanced in those different grade levels as well that, that are held back somewhat because of those other students. So are there other ways, are there ways that we can develop some individualized instruction to get all those kids up to where they need to be, but not hold the other kids back. And one of the things that comes to mind is in our rural communities, you know, some algebra one isn't taught in some of those communities. So can we offer that virtually with other schools that may offer it, other districts that may offer it? And so there's some of the innovations that our team, our policy team, John's team is looking at. Yeah, it's really great to think about, and this, these are conversations that are ongoing, like how can we leverage the massive investments that were made during the pandemic to close course access gaps, like AJ was mentioning. You know, historically, maybe in a small district, the economies of scale didn't work in a way that it made sense to offer, you know, every AP course or every advanced course, but you had these kids there that had that, you know, that path in their potential there's no reason we can't and shouldn't leverage the massive investment that Texas taxpayers have made to make sure every student has access to the courses they need to reach their potential. We won't be using that uh, chat GPT to be writing policy anytime soon. <laughs> I hope not. So AJ, you said our magic word innovation, right? And that's a lot mm -hmm. of what we dive into both mm -hmm. as innovation. And that means a whole broad set of things. It's not just as we kind of, you know, we, we like to use that instead of like the word startup because it means means a lot of different things, right? I mean, and especially in the 21st century economy, it means building and delivering it and comes in a lot of forms. One of the things, and one of the things that we liked about Texas 2036 when we first kind of came across is data, right? Data-driven, and, and we think about metrics, right? And we've come across a lot and have had a bunch of discussions about how do you measure innovation? So for you guys, how do you think about measuring how innovative Texas is as a state? Where do you kind of approach it from? Well, and it kind of goes back to what I was mentioning, Jason, about our the 170 metrics that we developed and this this data lab that we have uh, on our website that any that's publicly accessible to anyone uh, that can measure you know where we're at in any given respective area, whether that's education or healthcare, natural resources, et cetera, and measure ourselves uh, not just against other states, but we can measure ourselves within the state in terms of county to county uh, and area to region to region. Uh, so that's another. That's one scientific approach that we take to, to data. But I think, uh, from a philosophical standpoint, what what again gives us most of our strength is that we don't start with a uh, where we are with an ideology in terms of this is the this is what we should do from a policy perspective. We really start with let's look at the picture of what the data says. Where where does it tell us that where we're at right now? Before we make a decision on how to solve something and start throwing things at the wall. Let's figure out where we are. And it feels like um, our teams, our data teams working with our policy team are really kind of peeling the layer of an onion sometimes. You know, it, it seems to be one problem, but it's compounded by other issues. Uh, one of the examples I like to give is this who are the uninsured study that we're currently looking at. And we're looking at different psychological profiles 
and the reasons why people choose to to remain uninsured when some of them are eligible for that insurance. And it's a variety of reasons. It's not just a one-size-fits-all approach. Some of those individuals have difficulty with transportation. Some of them have difficulty with uh, mental health issues that we, the mental health aspect of it, frankly, uh, astounded me in terms of the expanse of that, uh, given what's happening. Some of them are 25 and think they're invincible. That is, that is definitely one of the psychological profiles in there. And it's, I, I just love this, this project as representative of how we're able to, you know, cut through partisan divides because so much like everyone knows Texas has both the highest uninsured rate and the most uninsured individuals, right? Like that's, that's a very common thing. Um, Texas is, you know, one of the states that has an expanded Medicaid and people typically start and end the conversation there. That would make a significant impact uh, in terms of reducing the number of uninsured Texans. But our problem is so massive that if you were to expand Medicaid, that coverage gap is just 16% of our uninsured population. Of the 5 million people, they're uninsured. Um, so what are we going to do about the other 84%? What solutions are available for them? And so... We had this crazy idea for a data-based think tank. Let's ask them. Let's ask the uninsured <laughs> folks themselves, why are you uninsured? And get their responses to help drive and augment all the publicly available data. Yeah, so we've interviewed- You shouldn't do that. Yeah. You know? We've interviewed <laughs> thousands of people- You can't create or, products yeah. by asking the customers. Yeah. You know? So we, we've had, um, we've interviewed over, uh, I think it's in the ballpark of 2,000 uninsured Texans. And um, this study is still ongoing. So, the, you know, there, there could be additional insights that we garner over the upcoming years. But just so far, learning about the, the barriers that they perceive, even when the government program is designed so that this is free or functionally free, you know, a dollar a month type programs. And so why are these people not availing themselves of something that you would say, well, you know, this, this is there, take it like it's, it's right in front of you. Um, the and, website is a good example of that. Yeah, like a lot of folks just said that the um, uh, Affordable Care Act Marketplace website was too difficult to use and had all these barriers. And they started getting spam calls the moment they put their personal information in there. And that frightened them away from using it. You know, there are policy solutions available to the Texas legislature that can address that. Like we have the ability as the state of Texas to take over the ACA Marketplace website, create a Texas exchange, and not only can we do it and probably improve the number of Texans who will use it, but the feds will pay us like $100 million a year to do it. So it is a profitable choice that can lower the uninsured population. So these things that are out there, when you start gathering the data, start talking to people, you know, this is not a left-right partisan thing or anything. People want to solve this problem. It's just sometimes you have to find the way to communicate it, and data really helps uh, accomplish that. Yeah, as someone who's run market intelligence groups for, especially for healthcare and uh, products and groups, yes, you need to actually find out how you get it to them. I mean, it, for me, it's funny because it's something I've, I've said a lot, you know, not on the podcast, but in different things. I think one of the biggest issues that we tend to have in the, you know, the, the health arena is the conversation around it tends to be focused on two things. Pure play product innovation. I got a new drug. I got a new device. I just I build a better mousetrap. Wait, tons of great, amazing innovation over there. Or as we talk about, the just very, very highly political who pays, right? You said expanding Medicare, single payer, whatever, right? The middle ground of, you know, con uh, customer experience, 
healthcare delivery, business model. There is so much opportunity space to innovate in that, that, but that's either not politically salient to talk about, or it's somewhat harder because there's much more easily fundable pathway to go like, look, if I create a new therapeutic, I can easily do a DCF model and I know how to fund that, right? And so when we see some of these kind of platforms break through, it's also really interesting when we see, and you got them going on this direction, you know, the consumerization right now, as you see Amazon, CVS, Walgreens, all that kind of getting into this space, I will find it very interesting, you know, uh, recently like CVS was talking about getting into uh, buying Oak, uh, Oak Street, which is, a, you know, a, a, I think a Medicaid uh, piece that looks like they're backing out. I'll find it really interesting when everyone keeps getting sucked into the, I'm going to go in the employer direction, right? You had Amazon buy one medical and then they were like, oh, but we, 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 we uh, I've had a few conversations about what are they going to do with Iorta, right? Which is the, their employer base, which is about half the, the revenue of one medical. It's like, are they going to stick with that? And is that really what they're going to be doing back to the employer? Or is it really, are they going to be doing the physical space? And this is the the physical side of their whole offering, right? And that's back to this whole thing of, are we delivering care differently? Is it the uninsured? Your point is like, health insurance is not healthcare. Just because you're insured, you're asking the question of, because you're insured now, great, but you're actually getting something. I think there's lots of different things that we can do and models and the policy, my perspective for the state should be, let's try different things. When half of the people that are insured aren't seeking healthcare because of all the unknowns in terms of price and, and what they're going to face at the end of the day with a, with a medical bill, that's oh, another price issue. Price that's a whole other thing. Topic, yes. Well, no, our, our, our guiding principle in health uh, healthcare is um, Texans need to be able to access the care they need when they need it. And embedded in that is at a price they can afford. Insurance is a tool that helps people afford care, but there are lots of other things that are involved in that. You can't just squeeze a balloon in healthcare and shift costs from one side to another. Eventually that cost will be borne and the, those system costs can add up and become unsustainable over time. And that's having a big holistic view of the, the whole picture is so essential because, you know, looking at, for example, the health transparency laws that are out there, that can be such a, a vital tool for, um, you know, businesses to, to help control their premium cost growth, et cetera, to, to provide better insurance to their employees. Or, you know, if you're thinking about an individual shopping for care and having a true marketplace where you can get in there like kayak and figure out what will this cost you at this one provider versus another. A lot of these innovations, like the path has been paved. We're not there yet. Uh, there are still some barriers out there, but you know, I think it's an exciting time. We're on the cusp of uh, radical healthcare innovation um, because of the transparency and because we are trying to create a healthier marketplace so that, you know, more stakeholders can be at the table in, in getting what they need out of a system so that we can have that care available to Texans when they need it. Yeah, you know, there are other barriers, though, frankly, that are out there in terms of accessing the care that you need when you need it. The number of doctors or providers in different communities. You know, Texas is huge. And frankly, the, you know, the a lot of the innovation that you're talking about really came from the pandemic. That's the silver lining. The telemedicine that was created, for instance, that that now we're looking at uh, how to, you know, the state then took on broadband from ensuring that schools, you know, kids were learning, that people were getting the care they need, that people would get online and get their prescriptions and order them and have them delivered. I mean, all that came from the innovations from um, from the pandemic and, and broadband, the need for broadband to expand in our legislature 
voting 181 to zero last session to create an office of plan of the map. Until then, we were one of six states that didn't have any of those three essential elements to leverage federal funds to our communities. Uh, all that from healthcare to, to broadband, I think thematically, last session was really all about you know, the pandemic and recovery uh, from the pandemic, including COVID, learning loss, et cetera. And now, as John mentioned, and what our team is focused on is this uh, record surplus that really can move the needle in all these pillar areas that I mentioned earlier uh, that we can look back one day and say, uh, as John mentioned earlier, with uh, innovations and investments that were made dozens and dozens of years ago, what are we doing today where they're going to look back and say, that was a great idea in terms of what they did back then to invest in our state's future? Well, as you said, like a lot of these things are coming out of the pandemic. And so like one of the, the last topics I want to look at is when we look at like some of the trends like remote work and all that, and one of the biggest and most interesting things I think about Texas is the fact that we are large enough and have a number of ecosystems. We talk about Austin, but with you know Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, you know the, the Texas Triangle, that we actually have larger ecosystems that have a set of collaboration. I always joke about the fact, you know, when I when I went on LinkedIn and raised my hand and said, "Hey, I'm here in Austin," I met people in Dallas, Houston, San Antonio without actually trying. So there actually is this sense of collaboration, but at the same time a healthy sense of competition. You know, no one, <laughs> no one in Houston's ever is like, well, I just want to be just like somebody, just like Dallas. Those words yeah. have never been said, right? right? <laughs> so that that connectivity and competition, so the unique identity, right. creates a really powerful super region that's within, though, a actual single set of governance within the state. We talk about like, I've, we've heard the super southeast, the heartland, like Nashville's a wonderful city. I, I don't know what it means if saying us in the same region once you cross state lines. So what is it being this mega region? What 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 do you think that positions I mean, us I for? I think number one, the state overall is experiencing some of this, and I, I witnessed it. We did a a, a sixteen city tour. John and other members of our team joined me for a lot of that. We call it our Texas Roadshow, and what we wanted to do is go out in the communities and understand what the problems were and what the issues were. You know, so we're not doing things out of our ivory tower here in Austin and not really connecting with communities, but. One of the most profound things that I witnessed was this regionalism, like you're mentioning, Jason, this, this real desire and enthusiasm to collaborate from city to city, whether it be on economic development, whether it be on how do we uh, ensure that our kids are educated, are there classes they can take over here, are there classes they can take over there, can we make some type of a interlocal agreement? And, and I, I just believe that that's happening every single place I went to, whether it's the Rio Grande Valley and the RGV uh, alliance that they have there uh, or the Borderplex Alliance in El Paso and their partnership with Juarez across the border. Uh, and you go all, uh, other places throughout the state. And DFW has been doing this for quite some time. You're seeing a real effort, speaking of Austin, uh, with the Austin Chamber and the San Antonio Chamber and the EDCs from each really reaching out and saying, hey, we've got a, this amazing asset that essentially from satellite looks like one big place. Should we be doing things together um, to, to increase the economy for both uh, in different ways? Well, you're from San Antonio, John. You're from Austin. <laughs> I have a question. Will ASA ever exist? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think it's, in, it's inevitable um, in, in regard to, uh, number one, there's a huge affinity for tacos 
in both places. Friendly rivalry. <laughs> it's absolutely friendly, yes, but also an affinity, right? And that's probably a good uh, a good way of looking at it in terms of there's this, as you mentioned, Jason, there's this friendly competition. But I think both regions want one another to do well, and I think that both regions, both rather both cities in one region, have the uh, different um, strengths and different weaknesses that that they can complement each other on. Uh, so I, you know, I've, I've recalled Dr. Henry Cisneros, you know, speaking about you know this region, you know, competing you know globally, uh, pretty significant. Not, not only is Texas you know the ninth largest economy in the in the world, but this region competes with other countries. Um, Austin and San Antonio, DFW competes with other countries, and um, so there's a real opportunity here to to make things happen. Yeah, I just think that that friendly rivalry aspect is is so important. It's, I mean. People are Texan. They're fiercely proud of being Texan. And y'all are new Texans. I hope you are fiercely proud of being Texan now. That camaraderie, when you have people from other cities that are saying, yes, I'd like to reach out to you. I'd like to help you. It's, it is a rivalry of sorts between these towns, but we are Texans first, and we want our state to thrive, and we want it to be the place where our kids can thrive, and we want it to be the place where our grandkids can thrive. Texans, there is no other Texas. There's nowhere else to go. We have a responsibility to keep our state the way that we want it, you know, if we want to have that, that opportunity for future generations. Well, I'll tell you, we're doing our part. If, if, you know, if UT football is the front porch of Austin, <laughs> then I got to tell you, then the Spurs coming and playing at the Moody Center <laughs> is going to be the, the link that begins to tie us together. And we've already bought tickets. So I'm an NBA fan anyway. So that was, this, that was a no-brainer. Well, the, the Spurs just filled the Alamo Dome, 68,000 people, which is an extraordinary feat, uh, record NBA uh, accomplishment. But again, I see, and the Spurs do have a presence here already, and Austin has an amazing soccer team as well. And so there's just a lot of opportunity there. Uh, we we got to figure out is, uh, is the transportation between the two and not just Zoom calls. I'm talking about physically <laughs> physically moving from one, one city to another uh, will definitely help me and others. Well, transportation is a topic that we will probably reserve for another episode <laughs> because good. there is a lot to talk about there. <laughs> we always end our podcast with our signature question. And in this case, I'll adapt it a little bit. AJ, John, what's next for Austin and what's next for Texas? You know, Texas, it's it's this budget and making these, these choices that are going to benefit our kids and grandkids. I mean, we are blessed to have so many people moving to Texas. We're blessed to have population growth. We need more water, right? We need more roads. We need to make sure our education system is working for our, our children because, I mean, 10% of the country's children are in Texas schools. Like, there's so much happening here. What's next, I hope, is that um, the legislature is going to embrace um, how incredible this opportunity is because we might not have uh, this type of budget situation again in our careers or lifetimes even. And, you know, when we're looking back 10, 20, 30 years from now, people might look back to that 2023 legislative session in Texas and go, you know, the last 20 years of economic growth have been unparalleled and great. The next 100 years is because of the choices that were made and the investments that were made this year. And that, you know, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't add much to that except to say, you know, know when to stay out of your own way and, and be productive in that sense, right, for both the state and, and the cities. 
uh, I think there's an incredible and vast opportunity. Uh, sometimes um, we have a, we have trouble taking yes for an answer, uh, and it's something to think about uh, going forward and uh, and being just uh, very thoughtful in the way we approach the future. AJ John, your entire Texas 2036 team, thank you so much for joining us on Austin Next. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher, leave us a review, and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon.